I don't know about you, but I kind of have a love-hate relationship with a CRM. I used to, in my first sales job, going door-to-door selling house painting services, we had a CRM that they built in-house, and my goodness, it was very slow. (laughs) And what most reps ended up doing was using spreadsheets. Don't get me wrong. I know you need a CRM. There's no doubt about that. But the thing that really sucks about CRMs is it seems like the more you use them, the more work it takes to maintain them. And for outbound activity, like we talk a lot about on this podcast, CRM couldn't be a worse tool to use to track your prospecting activity. Every time I see a company make their reps track activity in Salesforce or HubSpot or whatever else they're using, it ends up taking way more time than just using a spreadsheet. So reps don't do it. So you have no idea how many calls you've made, emails you've sent out, none of that kind of stuff, because all the tasks are manual. I want to tell you about an alternative to that. If you have not heard of a sales engagement platform, you need to check out Outplay. And this episode is brought to you by Outplay, which is a tool that sits alongside your CRM, but they sits inside your CRM. And it's a way that you can track your prospecting activity that also can help you three to five X your output. So think about a tool where you could manage the six emails you're going to send, the six cold calls you're going to make, the two LinkedIn touches, whatever it might be. And it helps you, it helps you be more productive, not bog you down, keeping track of all that stuff. And you can create sequences, you can apply some automation, and you can create repeatable sales playbooks for you and your team to follow so that you can scale results. So if you're an individual and you don't have uh, a sales engagement platform, excuse me, you need to check it out. And I want you to be able to spend more time taking action and doing prospecting instead of updating your CRM. One last cool thing I wanna share with you too is that most sales engagement platforms don't integrate with all the other CRMs out there besides HubSpot and Salesforce. So if you're using something like Pipedrive or Zoho or Fresh Sales, they have a seamless integration with those tools. I personally use Pipedrive, so it's kind of cool to have a tool that integrates with Pipedrive. I also want to hook you up with a 20% discount. So for Black Friday, I got them to work out a special deal for you. Instead of paying $75 per month or $900 annually, I could save you 20%, which is about 180 bucks, which is a pretty big savings. So if you got a team you want to set this up for, If you're an individual and you need a sales engagement platform, visit outplayhq.com slash Jason. I want to give you the homie hookup. You'll save 20% there. Outplayhq.com slash Jason. Hey, what's going on? Jason Bay here. If you're listening to Blissful Prospecting, you can call me Jay Bay. This podcast is for reps and sales teams. Love landing big meetings with their prospects, but absolutely can't stand having to send hundreds of cold emails to get a couple of responses, or making cold calls and really just not moving the needle at all. So if that's ever happened to you or someone on your team or team of people that you're running, you're definitely in the right place. Today, we're talking to Sean Rhodes over at Bulletproof Selling. Sean's a really cool dude. I got to know him a little bit over the last couple months. He is an ex-Marine, which I really relate with. My dad is an ex-Marine. I have two cousins that were Marines and I have a brother that was in the army. I considered joining the military, I think three or four different times. When I was in high school, I considered joining the Marines. My dad talked me out of doing that. And then I almost joined the National Guard in college. And then for some reason in my mid twenties, I was having a midlife, I guess it's not midlife at that time, a quarter life crisis. And I thought that I wanted to become a Navy SEAL. <laughs> so, which I'm, I'm glad I didn't do any of those things, not because I don't like the military, just because I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing right now, at least at this time, if I was doing those things. But Sean 
he's got such a great perspective. Um, so he's ex-Marine. He was uh, really doing a lot of stuff with reporting. So he was essentially a reporter that'd be out there on the on the front lines in Iraq, Afghanistan, right next to the troops, like documenting everything. Then he talks about his journey getting into sales and now coaching and, and speaking and all that other kind of stuff. But one thing I think that you're really going to like is he runs through his three M's of you know outbound prospecting, movement, method, message. And he also talks about why hope is not a great sales strategy, which I, I love. And we dig into his background a bit and what you can learn regardless of what you think about the military or all that other stuff. We're not talking about war or anything like that. Regardless of what you think about that, you're going to get a ton of value. We actually kind of talk about that topic as well, but I had a blast talking to Sean. So hope you enjoy the episode as well. And without further ado, let's get to it. So uh, I've been on your show and uh, I'm super excited to have you on the show now. But uh, like I said, before we hit recording, did a little bit of just kind of poking around and just to learn a little bit more about your background. And I'd love for you to share just, you were in the Marine Corps, you know, a while ago mm-hmm. from 2000, I think to 2005, I shared with you, you know, my dad was a Marine, got a, a brother that was in the army, a couple of cousins in the Marines. And I'm just curious, how, how did you get into some of the other stuff that you did around PR and journalism and then into sales, like how did, how did that shift happen? Cause I'm sure you didn't go into the Marines wanting to become a professional speaker or salesperson or anything like that. I'm sure. No, <laughs> no actually I didn't know at 18 kind of what I wanted to do. Yeah. Um, so in, in the United States for your international listeners, we have this thing called the ASVAB and it's a little bit like a standard test that the military gives to yeah. everybody that's in high school. Uh, before you get to university. And that way they know at least a little bit about you as far as do you have an engineering background? Are you really good at numbers? um, Or are you bad at them? In my case, I failed everything on that test except for verbal comprehension. On verbal comprehension, I was off the charts because I love to read. Um, I love to get up in front of the class and speak. I was kind of like the class clown, got in trouble for talking too much, a lot. And I was terrible at math and engineering and everything else. So I went to the Marine Corps and I said, hey, I'd love to see what you guys are about, but I have the test results and it doesn't look like I'm very good at much. And he looked at it and he says, you're right. We couldn't have you basically do any job except for maybe this one. And he flips to the back of his recruiting manual and he says, How about this one? How about you be a combat correspondent? Because they're the people that write for us. Yeah. And I said, well, that sounds pretty like non-Marine-ish. I thought you all were just a bunch of like gravel leading, knuckle dragging, you know, go out there and and kill stuff kind of people. Um, And he said, no, it's it's, it's a pretty safe job. You know, why don't you like bring it to your, you know, your mom and see what she has to say about it. And my mom thought it was a pretty safe job too. So she was willing to sign for me because I was just 17 when that conversation happened. Uh, so I wasn't allowed to join myself. My mother had to sign my life over to the Marine Corps. Mm-hmm. And uh, the joke ended up being on all of them because I was right there on the front lines with every Marine Corps unit they ever embedded me with because they needed people to be able to share the stories of these men and women from the battlefield. And these folks were worried about you know keeping their, their butts alive, putting rounds down range. I had a rifle too, but one of my primary duties was to make sure I was telling their story. So right behind them, clearing houses, right there in the uh, trenches with them as we were taking in fire and making sure that the world knew about the great work that these men and women in uniform were doing for us. Now, that had a lot to do with my transition into sales. 
because as I watched these men and women uh, go through clearing houses, for instance, um, and for the folks that are catching this via video, uh, showing a video right now on the screen where a bunch of Marines are stacked up outside a door and they get ready to go in. And if you've ever seen a war movie, you've seen something like this, Jason, where people are going in, rifles pointed every which direction. And I realized seeing this, these men and women didn't know where the enemy was going to be. They didn't know where the stairwells were, where the uh, weird blind turns were going to be. But yet they figured out time and time again how to be successful, how to be essentially bulletproof. And studying this enough times and doing enough of these missions, we realized these folks weren't bulletproof because they had superhuman powers. No, they were bulletproof because of every single time their predecessors hadn't been. As I'm sure your dad probably explained to you if he didn't make you do it as a family, um, after every mission, these folks would do a debrief. Yeah. They would ask what went right, what went wrong, how do we get better? And that information wasn't just like, you know, shared around the water cooler. No, it was captured and it was implemented so that the next time something like that happened, we could keep more people alive. Well, if you could do that in your outreach, in how you research and prospect and conduct outbound uh, communications with anybody inside of your pipeline, if you learn from it and get better every single day, just like those Marines do in clearing those houses, the results are absolutely amazing. And so as I realized, there was an applicability between what I'd seen in the battlefield, of, you know, actual battlefield and what I'd seen in the battlefield of business. Um, that jump was actually a lot easier than I, I probably made it out to be. Yeah. So, OK, I have not gone through boot camp, so I'm very kind of curious about that part of it. From my understanding, there is a system and process behind most, if not like all of what you're doing through boot camp or through training and that sort of stuff. Oh, yeah. Was that a foreign thing to you when you first experienced that? Were you used to that kind of structure before that? Or did it kind of catch you by surprise? Mm. What, what was that like? No, I was a uh, card-carrying hippie. I got to be honest <laughs> with you, Jason. Okay. Um, I was actually raised on the West Coast of California okay. before I uh, started moving around the country. So I was all up in it, man. Birkenstocks and, and you know, the, the whole shebang. Yeah. So when I got into boot camp, this was a culture shock like none other. And I, I kind of knew what to look for because I'd watched a couple of movies about Marines going through boot camp, but, you know, actually getting yelled at in your face like 20 hours a day. It was pretty intense. Yeah. And people see that and they ask, you know, how could you undergo such abuse? Like, why would you volunteer for that? Well, I realized once I left boot camp and actually ended up in combat that there was a system to what they were doing to all of us at Paris Island mm -hmm. and that everything that they did, the loud noises, uh, needing to react immediately to an order without really processing it consciously, but just, you know, like somebody tells you to get down, you don't look around and question why, because yeah. if you do that, you may not have a head anymore if you're in combat, right? Yeah. So they teach us to immediately obey orders, to deal with loud noises and still be able to function in a stressful environment. All of that saved my life when I ended up in Iraq. So there is a system, there is a purpose, there is a process behind it. And if you think about sales being the same way, when we talk about training salespeople, how many folks do you consult with where they first day of, you know, the on the job training is here's your leads, here's your, you know, way of dialing out or sending email, you know, here's the activity quota, go to work. And that's all the training they're given. And obviously you do a lot of work in turning that around, making sure people are a little more educated in the, the great career field of sales. But so many salespeople, that's what they deal with. That would be like asking those Marines to stack up outside a house and start knocking on the doors and the windows, asking if anybody's home. Yeah, It would get you a result, but not the result that you would want. Yeah. <laughs> so instead of doing that, what I advocate sales leaders do is actually put your salespeople in positions that are tougher than the ones that they're going to end up in with prospects. Yeah. So get your salesperson that's got a lot of time on the phone and ask them to play the role of a hammerhead. 
Like what is the, the, you know, the, the most rude, just nasty prospect that you've ever encountered and have him play that role with your junior salespeople. And that way, when they do encounter that person, it's probably not going to be as bad as that senior salesperson made it out to be during training, but that way you'll be ready. You'll understand how to deal with that energy, the objection turnarounds you need to use, how to execute against somebody that's like, yeah, I don't have any time for you. What? Yeah. Which I hear because I I do outbound too. So how do you deal with that in a way where you're prepared for it? That's what the Marines got me ready for in combat. That's what we can do for salespeople as well. Yes. Okay. So I... Super excited because I think there's a lot though that we can unpack around this topic oh, yeah. of like uncertainty. Yeah. <laughs> I think there's a lot of different ways you can deal with the uncertainty. There's the mindset behind it. There's stress testing yourself. It sounds like there's systems that can make you feel better about mm-hmm. uncertainty. And then also I love this reflection and debriefing piece. Before we get into that, and this is not to put you on the spot, but I know that there's going to be people listening to this that when they hear the military analogy, they might think like, oh yeah, because there's this whole group of you know, people on LinkedIn that consume stuff. And it's like, they don't want people to use these types of analogies, which I think it's very appropriate because it makes a lot of sense. I'm also very into military type stuff, you know? So for me, sure. it's like, I'm sort of in the military a couple of times, uh, really into fighter jets and aircraft carriers, yeah. and tanks and all that's like, that's, that's what I was fascinated with as a kid. What do yes. you say to the person that might be listening to this or watching it and be like, ah, I just don't really vibe with the whole military thing. And I know I'm totally putting you on the spot here, but yeah, how do you, how do you no, deal no, with that? I'm sure this happens with companies a, you speak at because there's tons of different oh, types yeah. of people in there. It's a very fair question. And I'll say that if you watch a war movie or a documentary on National Geographic or something, and it has the military folks in it, you may not realize it, but you're looking at salespeople yeah. in every one of those movies. Those folks have a quota to meet, they've got pipeline to track, and they definitely have conversion rates. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, in urban warfare, for instance, there's a 50% conversion rate. Now, a lot of salespeople would be like, 50% conversion? Shoot, I want that gig. Well, what that means is if you send 10 people inside of an occupied building, uh, statistically, only five of them are going to walk back out under their own power. Yeah. Well, that's that's the kind of conversion rate maybe you don't want, uh, but those folks are held to those standards. And so you may not be on an actual battlefield, but sales by definition is the battlefield of business because we're battling every day for the attention of people that may not know anything about us. They may not have time on their calendar for us. We're battling against everything else they had scheduled that day. And often, and I know you you know this to be true, Jason, we're battling against their ignorance and sometimes apathy. Yeah. Not only do they not know what we have to offer that could change their lives or their businesses, but they may not care. Yeah. Well, that's a battle that we get to fight. And I don't say we have to fight. I mean, we get to fight it. The best Marines that I knew, uh, they weren't violent people by nature, but they loved their jobs because they understood using the systems and the processes they'd been trained with that were drawing from 200 years of lessons learned that they could perform at an incredibly high level and be really exceptional at what they did. Well, salespeople have the ability to do that as well. So I, I never want to phrase uh, prospecting as, you know, like you're, you're trying to attack the enemy because your prospects are not your enemy. Yeah. They could be your partners for sure. Yeah. But that's often a turn that we have to help guide them on. Um, you and I know the very best sales are the ones where we get into deep relationships with the people that we're selling to. Yeah. And that may not always start as a friendly relationship. It might be adversarial at first until they realize, hey, we're not here to just, you know, schlep some stuff to you. We're here to help improve what you got going on. Yeah. Love it. I just thought we should address that because I know there's going to be people listening to this. They're like, oh, you know, this and great answer. So I'm sold. All right. So if we start to unpack the uncertainty piece, I think that's something that's kind of interesting. And I'm curious how you think about this. But in sales, 
uncertainty can be very hard to deal with because on any given day or month, it's you know, there's certain things that you can do to create more certainty in you hitting your quota on your targets, but a lot of it's just having faith in the activity and the systems, right? Mm-hmm. And the very thing that is interesting to me is this kind of paradox that happens where we want things to be more certain, but because things are more uncertain in sales as a job, that's kind of how mm-hmm. it works. You know what I mean? Like, that's why we get paid well to do what we do if we're good at it is because it's uncertain, you know? So how do you think about yeah uncertainty and just from a a mindset standpoint, dealing with, hey, things typically don't happen fast in sales. And on any given day, some stuff may not work out in my favor. And how do I deal with that uncertainty? This is the biggest stressor that I see, especially for people doing a lot of outbound and that sort of stuff. So how do you think about uncertainty? So the subtitle of our book, we, you know, like big words on the inside flap of it is that hope is not a sales strategy. And the reason that uncertainty causes so much stress in the lives of salespeople is that they enter each day, for the most part, hoping that they're going to reach the right decision maker, hoping that person is going to have time for a conversation, hoping that their script will generate the discovery questions and get answers that they need to move that person deeper into their pipeline, hoping they get a proposal out. There's so much hope involved, and that causes a lot of stress, unfortunately. So the way that we see the best salespeople deal with uncertainty is by replacing it with a willingness to innovate. Now, innovation is a very interesting thing in the field of sales because studying thousands of salespeople by this point, Jason, we're able to tell that the senior salespeople in an organization, the people with multiple decades of experience, they're innovating at an incredibly high level in that sometimes they'll walk into a sales meeting with nothing but a blank notepad. I mean, no product specs, no pricing sheets, no script, no checklist, nothing, just what's in their head. And the chief challenge of many sales leaders right now uh, from a bunch of studies that have come out just this month is managing a multi-generational workforce. How do we handle training our junior salespeople in outbound when we have these senior salespeople that refuse to learn anything new or share a lot of what they know? So if we're going to replace hope with certainty, it comes from understanding how do we actively take the initiative on innovating in our conversations? So I'm a firm advocate of scripts. I'm a great advocate of templates. They save us all a lot of time. They're guide sheets. They're not things to be used verbatim. Uh, So for the folks that are able to catch this via video, I'm going to show you a kind of a graph that we put together studying combat troops and salespeople on how they're able to innovate at an incredibly high level. What we realized was the more attention that you have on the task at hand, the conversation that you're about to get into, the questions that you need answers to, the product specs that you're hoping to pitch to this next prospect, the more you're focused on the tactical details of what's going on, the less ability you have to innovate. And that's why we see such a high level of innovation from senior salespeople is that they're no longer focused on those technical details. That's like muscle memory to them. They've been in the field so long. They've been selling for so many years. They don't have to focus on the the kind of nitty gritty of what's going on. It's all second nature. It's like a lot of people can play an instrument without reading music. They just play because they practice enough. So the question then is if I'm putting, you know, 90, 100% of my focus on the tactical details because I'm new to my business or new to sales, It means an incredibly low ability to innovate because so much of my attention is focused on just the next step in front of me. But if we can start teaching people through systems, through process, through scripts, templates, all the things that you and I know very well benefit sales teams, if we can start doing that, we can actually dial back someone's need to focus on the nitty gritty details because the systems handle that for us. And what that allows us to do instead of 100% on the tactical details, maybe 20%. Well, now you have an 80% window to play with in innovation, 
which is going to be required on every single sales call. I've never seen a call go exactly according to plan. And we're tracking over 12,000 of them at this point. Not one of them has gone exactly according to script. We have to innovate. But if I'm focused on the next step, I'm going to be very uncertain. I'm going to have a lot of call reluctance. It's going to be difficult for me to pick up the phone because I'm so worried about forgetting something. I'm hoping that it works out okay and hope doesn't work on the battlefield. It doesn't work in business either. Yeah. So a lot of this, what this makes me think about is you know, being in the zone, right? They talk about it in sports. Mm-hmm. And did you, did you play sports in high school? I studied a lot about flow. Yeah. So uh, being in the zone, um, all of that peak performance, peak yeah. state. Yeah. I'm, I'm a firm believer in it. And I always try to reach it each day through martial arts, music, a yeah. lot of different activities. Yeah. Well, martial arts, that's another great one. I, I, uh, I did Muay Thai for about a year, year and a half or so. Nothing at a high level, but just yeah. the amount of focus and repetition. And I played basketball in high yeah. school. That was another you know, kind of thing. When you practice and put in those reps, it it does it allows you to totally be engrossed in the moment. And I think that right. you know, especially with outbound in a cold call, if you're if you're having to think about what you're going to say, that doesn't allow you to pay attention to really close things like the inflection of this person's voice. Do they sound like they're present in this conversation? The nuance of the adjectives that they use to describe the state mm-hmm. that they're in right now. So what are some tips that you have for getting into more of a flow state? I mean, we talked about essentially reducing brain power so that we can innovate yeah. systems. Are there any systems that you recommend? Like, what are the systems for, for outbound? Like, what, what are kind of the maybe two or three big systems or they a system that we should uh, incorporate yeah. in here to reduce the amount of brain power that it takes? To, so that You're going to love this. Uh, I actually have three M's to mastering outreach. Cool. So it's already there. All right. So the first M in mastering outreach, these are things that you need to know ahead of time, ahead of the call, the things to put into place to get a firm grip on. Because if you try to do this while you're in a conversation, good luck. Yeah. But the first M is movement. You need to know before you pick up the phone where this prospect is in your sales process, in your pipeline. How much information do you have or not have on this individual? Because once you know where you're at and where they're at, you know what questions to ask. So I I often use the analogy because I'm based down here in Tampa, Florida, Jason. If I was trying to go from Tampa, Florida to Seattle, Washington, the directions and guidance that somebody would give me if I was still on an interstate in Tampa would be a lot different than if I was right outside of Seattle or if I was just crossing over the the California state line. Yeah. Right. It'd be a lot different because I'm at a different point in that journey. Mm-hmm. Well, your prospects are each at a different point in your sales cycle and your journey as well. And if you don't know where they are, you might end up giving somebody the script or the guidance or advice you'd give them just at the beginning when really they're closer to the tail end because maybe you've met with them a few times or you know more about their organization. You've been able to get a referral in. So you already have a bit of relationship built. So we have to understand first movement. Where is this person currently and where am I trying to get them to go? It might be all the way to the close. It might be, hey, if I can just get them to a proposal, or it might not even be that. It might be, if I can just qualify this person for decision-making capability and budget, hey, that's a win, but that's movement. So we got to know where this person is and where we want them to go. The second M is method. And this is something that a lot of salespeople lose track of because we each have a preferred method of outreach. For some of us, it's the phone. For some of us, we're required to use the phone more than anything else just because we're dealing in volume and conversations. Some of us are in-person folks, especially the older generations of salespeople that I get to work with. A lot of them prefer in-person meetings because they do better there. It's what they came up in. Well, if we default to our favorite method of outreach, we're not giving our prospect a chance to 
teach us, to train us, to educate us on what their preferred method is. Mm -hmm. So if we're only using phone and not getting a hold of anybody and we give that prospect up, they're going to buy from somebody likely, but it's not going to be from us because maybe they really do well responding to direct messages or they're awesome at in-person meetings or they're really great at you know, answering emails. But if all we're doing is banging out phone calls and leaving voicemails, maybe they're not getting them at all. So that's a big opportunity for systemizing, making sure you're building in different methods of outreach. And the final M, the one that I know you focus a lot on, Jason, is the message. Now, the message looks like how do we systemize it and what do we actually say? So in systemizing a messaging, it looks like scripts, not having to invent everything from scratch every single call. Uh, in your emails, it might look like templates. Obviously, you're customizing those. Might look like direct message templates as well. Again, customizing those. I hate getting something that I know somebody sent out to 500 other people. It's an immediate delete. But if it's customized to me and my challenges and my industry, 90% of that could be pre-scripted. I'll never know because it's got my name in it. It's got my challenges, my hometown, all the things that I'm dealing with because the person's done the research, taken the time. Uh, so that's how you systemize that bit of messaging. But then the actual message itself, something I see a lot of salespeople make a mistake with is they make it about them. And I'm sure you get these direct messages every single day. Yep. I'd love to tell you about my company and all the great things we're doing to service our customers and all the awards that we've gotten. It's like, hey, this has nothing to do with me. So obviously you must be talking to yourself in an echo chamber because you haven't mentioned me, my challenges, or wanting to know about them once. Yeah. So if you can make your messaging a little more systemized and make it prospect focused rather than you or what you're trying to sell focused, you can build in method, movement, and messaging into a really tight outbound system that'll get your results like you've never seen. Yeah. Let's dig into these. The movement piece, I, I think is super important because a lot of what I deal with in people listening to this are doing, you know, cold outbound. So they're, they're getting and building that first relationship. And a lot of times they talk to people as if they are already in their sales pipeline, you know, right. They're talking to people. Like Sean <laughs> already knows what my product is and already knows that he has a problem that I can help him with and all this other stuff. So I, I love that piece with the method though. I'm curious with the work that you do, do you see people picking up the phone more or relying on email more? Does it kind of change maybe based on the context? What do you see in the in the work that you do? Where, where do people tend to rely too much on uh, on a single channel? So the the prospects I have, um, can I address your question from the, both the salesperson's sure. perspective and the prospect's perspective? For the prospects that we target and that we study across industry, it's very prospect dependent. Yeah. We see executive level decision makers that will not answer an email, but they're always picking up their phone or that'll never pick up their phone, but always respond on LinkedIn. So it's very prospect dependent. And of course, once you discover what a prospect's preferred method of response is, then you can target more of your communication into that channel to generate more conversation. But from a salesperson's perspective, we see a lot of salespeople over rely on email yep. and it's easy to blast out. It's easy to customize and it comes with a very low chance of rejection. Because if they don't want to talk to you, they're not going to let you know via email most times. They're just going to hit delete. Yeah. Or they might not even open it, right? A lot of stuff could just go to spam. Uh, and that's why it's critically important that we, one, take the time to put ourselves in that position to be rejected, which is via phone or in person. Uh, if you're targeting geographically or you're hopping on airplanes again, you can do site visits, which you might get rejected on. But you'll learn a lot more by doing that than you will by any other method, uh, you know, in person, phone, and even Zoom. But yeah, salespeople tend to rely on the lowest rejection threshold possible. So that's direct message and email, unfortunately. You know what I get asked a lot, both from reps and from sales teams, is what do you recommend 
for my sales engagement platform. So the outbound tool that I'm gonna be using to track my emails, apply some automation, make some phone calls through, what's the difference between X and Y? And you probably know what companies I'm talking about. I won't mention their name, but they're two very, very big companies worth hundreds of millions of dollars in the space. And here's the problem. Those are great tools and they work fine, but they're really built for enterprise sales teams. They're built for teams with hundreds of sales reps that have people on staff in ops and enablement. They can use their full-time job as a way to manage these tools and set them up and then maintain them. And that's the problem. They're really complicated to set up and manage. And oftentimes what I hear is, you know what, when I go to reach out to a customer support team and I only have a few dozen reps using this tool, we don't really get answers very quickly. So what I wanna tell you about is a sales engagement platform that I'm super excited about. And this episode is brought to you by Outplay. There are a lot of platforms out there to help you scale outbound, but here's the thing. Most of them, like I said, are built for large sales teams with engineers who can dedicate full-time effort into setting them up. Outplay doesn't require any of that at all. You can actually get this set up in a day or two, and they are very, very good customer support. All of the customers that I've talked to, the case studies that they have, the one thing in common that they talk about is this thing works just as well as those other tools, but I get the support that I need running a small sales team of you know, 25, 50 folks, under 100, that sort of thing. So if you're looking for something that's easier to use, and maybe you have a CRM, like a Pipedrive, a Zoho, something outside of HubSpot or Salesforce that you need to sync up to, it'll do that. And it also works really well with HubSpot and Salesforce too. So if you're looking for something, you can plug your team in right away, sync it overnight, and start creating sequences for your reps to start booking meetings immediately. Make sure to check out Outplay. I got a special deal for you. They, uh, I was able to convince them to give us a Black Friday offer. And they're gonna give you a 20% discount, which is $180 off per seat. So if you're setting this up for yourself, I definitely would go check it out. It's $75 a month or $900 annually, and I can get you $180 off, which is 20% off there, if you go to outplayhq.com slash Jason. Again, if you have a sales team that you wanna set this for up, I highly recommend you check it out. And if you're an individual that just wants a sales engagement tool that's easy to use, easy to set up, not gonna break the bank, make sure to check it out, outplayhq.com slash Jason. Okay, let's talk about the call reluctance piece then, the fear of rejection. Yeah. How do you think about, I'm curious, I, I don't know, there's probably a military, you know, kind of connection here too. I don't know, do they talk about that when you're in the Marines about fear and how to deal with that? And Oh, yeah. Yeah, how do they talk about that? I'm kind of, kind of curious because I think there'd be a lot of parallels, I'm sure. Yeah, so let's, let's, let's approach this like a very poorly planned mission would, would be set up, like something no Marine would want to volunteer for. Um, so you all are going to go into this part of this neighborhood. We're pretty sure it's occupied and we're pretty sure they're heavily armed, but we're not sure where they are or what kind of weapons they have or how long they've been there, how well they know their terrain. Um, and we're not quite sure what we're going to give you to deal with that either. Like what kind of weapons you're going to have to be provided with or how much gas we're going to put in your vehicles. Uh, but we kind of would like you to do something about this. So best of luck. Yeah. No Marine would be like, no, no, this, this is terrible. Yeah. Like, like there's this thing in the military called, you need to request mast, like go up the chain of command yeah. to try to subvert a really bad order that would happen yeah. in that case. Cause there's a very low chance of survival out of that one. Yeah. Like let's, let's look at the, the opposite example. Um, so, you know, we need you to clear these specific three city blocks. This many houses are contained in them. We're using infrared uh, scoping. We know that there are approximately a dozen, uh, you know, bad folks in there. 
They have these kind of weapon system more than likely. You're going to be provided air support. You're going to have artillery. You're going to be rolling in with this many vehicles, this many people. Your primary mission objective is to clear the houses. Secondary is to gather intelligence. And your tertiary is to get everybody back out alive. And if you need to dive in deeper specifically to any of those objectives, then they do that as a unit. And it needs to be accomplished, by the way, by you know 0, 0400 hours tomorrow morning. So that's that's your timeline. Well, with that, there's a few things in there that I said really quickly, but that are vitally important that we can apply to sales. One is these folks didn't have just one primary objective. Most salespeople, especially in outbound, think that their primary and only objective is to get the sale on the first call. Yeah. Well, that might work if you're dealing with a very uh, retail product or service, or it's got a very low price point. But for most of us, it takes multiple calls to drive a sale or even a meeting. And so what that means is instead of just a primary objective of I need to you know, clear all these buildings, secondary and also acceptable is to gather intelligence that would help us win the war. So maybe your intelligence gathering is discovering who the decision makers are in that organization, maybe getting a direct phone line so you don't have to keep banging through the phone tree and hitting eight gatekeepers along the way. Um, you know, whatever that might look like for you to gather intelligence, to be able to better sell to them in the future, get that conversation going a little bit quicker. So if you can do that, then you can essentially gamify outreach. And Marines, because they walk into their combat missions with so much intelligence and so much training and mission objectives that aren't just, you know, we need you to win the war with this one mission. Like your small part is this, and it's very achievable most times. Uh, it's always a challenge, but it's achievable, just like sales. So by doing that, then you don't have to be overwhelmed with having to make the sale on every single call, which is where that call reluctance tends to come into more often than not. Uh, but if I walk in and I say, these are the nine things I need to know about this prospect in order to get them as far down in my pipeline as I possibly can, I might get all nine things bumped out in one call if they're really willing to chat with me and they're willing to go to that level of our relationship. But maybe I only get two or three. Well, that's still a good day because that's two or three more things than my competition has been able to gather. I guarantee it because very few people are thinking in this kind of mission-oriented way. Yeah. I love that multiple objectives. And essentially what I'm taking from that is that there's a lot, if you could take the pressure off a bit, not put so much yeah. pressure on yourself to get a result that, you know, if we're being fair here, I mean, getting a meeting off of a pure cold call, if you're really good at it, you're going to maybe get one out of every three. That's, that's really, really, bad, right. you know, so most of the time, statistically, just like anything else in sales, you're probably going to fail, Yeah. you know, and by fail, I mean, not get the meeting, but essentially if we kind of look at what success is a little bit more, I love that. Yeah. The priorities. Do you ever run across anyone else that deals with call reluctance or anything else like that? Um, is there anything other types of stuff that you found to be effective with someone that, not as afraid of picking up the phone, but, you know, they don't want to call that C-level person, you know, you know what I mean? <laughs> you, you see that where it's like, oh God, this guy's Sean, he's been, I look at his LinkedIn profile, he's been doing this for 20 years. I, He's got so much more experience. And what can he possibly gain from talking? Why would he want to talk to oh, me? Yeah. I hear that a lot too. Oh yeah. And so the, the first thing I'll say, this is a mindset piece. Yeah. So less tactics, more mindset. Although this can be systemized as well, go figure. But it's being so convinced of the value of what it is that you sell. And maybe it's not the meeting itself, but it's what could happen after the meeting if this person onboards with your product or service. Uh, but being more convinced of that value than you are concerned with interrupting someone. Yeah. Because if we're cold calling, by definition, we are interrupting this person. It wasn't on their calendar. They had no idea we were going to dial in or send an email or, or hit them with a DM. A lot of different ways to do it, but nobody's expecting it. What that means is, is that I have to be informed 
And this might mean reaching into your company to the people who deliver the product or service, you know, the actual service delivery folks to say, you know, give me some stories about how this actually impacts the lives personally and professionally of the people that we sell this to, because I need that information. And if I know that my product or service frees up the life of a dad four hours a week so they can spend those four hours with their little girl and take her to dance recitals, that in and of itself, because I'm a dad, that's enough for me to want to interrupt any C-level executive. If I know that I could help create that for them, yeah, does that make sense? So by doing that, it's saying, you know, unless you're about to take your little girl to a dance recital, this call, this cold call is more important than whatever you had on your calendar, because I'm going to make an assumption that you're a decent human being. Sometimes it's a big assumption, but I make it anyway. Um, and that you care about your family. Well, what I'm selling is a piece of software that's going to help you professionally, but it's actually the end state is freeing up a lot of your time so that you can do more of the things that you love to do with the people you love the most. Yeah. And so, because I'm sure you've hit it as well, Jason, where you're, you're cold calling and they're like, hey, I just got out of a meeting three hours long. I've got to go to the bathroom. Call me back later. You know, if you hang up that phone, you ain't getting them later. Yeah. Very low probability. Right. Yeah. So it's, I understand you got to go to the bathroom. Uh, I need to figure out a couple of things, make sure that it's worth us having a conversation later. And if it is happy to let you go about your day and do your business. But I can only do that because I'm more convinced in the value I can provide than whatever it was they got on their calendar up to and including bodily functions. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's conviction, right? That's what you're saying. Yeah. It's, it's the conviction and the belief in your product service. And that's something that one thing I recommend to sales leaders is, you know, they share a lot of sales wins with their team, but share client wins too. You know, when your mm. service team, if you're delivering a service or your customer success team in SaaS, it's if they deliver big client wins, it doesn't have to be a formalized case study. Just share it with your sales team because I want to just, I'm really pretty picky about the clients that I work with because if I don't believe in what they're doing, it's kind of hard for me to train and work around it, you know? So that's a big thing I look for. And it's just like, you got to drink the company Kool-Aid, you know, like you've really got to actually believe in what you're doing. That's, that's really big. Let's talk about this message piece and, and maybe first talk about what do you, what do you see people doing, you know, wrong? And if you have any examples to provide, that would be great. But how do we, what should we avoid? And then how do we do, you know, the opposite of that when it comes to, you know, just kind of the message in our value prop and that sort of thing? Well, I could open my LinkedIn profile and just read my inbox yeah. to you for examples of what not to do. And I think we all could because it's 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 endemic. I don't know what LinkedIn was doing, giving people access to blast messages out and hoping that's a good sales strategy. Yeah. Uh, but number one thing is making it all about them. Yeah. So I see that more often than not. People are so in love with their own legend, even if they don't have a legend, that they think that that's going to be enough to convince somebody. Um, the second thing is asking for something without being willing to give first. Yeah. So a lot of these uh, messages and voicemails I get are, you know, trying to set a meeting with you, love to get 15 minutes on the calendar. I'm arrogant enough to drop a calendar link. Yeah. Um, I was guilty of this a couple of years back as well, but quickly learned it was not fair for me to ask for 15 minutes from someone. I wasn't willing to show them value first. Yeah. And that means taking the time to understand a little bit about them, their job title and their business. So if you have the, the time, because you're not sourcing 3000 prospects in, in any given day, if you have the time to research your prospects individually on LinkedIn, uh, you know, on bookers or whatever, you know, search engine that you have access to with your company, do that, figure out what pieces of information you need ahead of time. So you have a checklist to fill out. Otherwise you're just going to be reading for a long time. Uh, but you're looking for what pieces of information will allow me to personalize my outreach to this individual. And once you have that, now you're better prepared than 90% of the folks. And that being said, when you do reach out, 
provide something of value to them based on what you know about them already. Yeah. And um, I actually, you know, do a lot of uh, just interviews with people that are value experts. And what we realize more often than not is that value is individually defined. So if I send you a white paper and I say, here's a piece of value, I'm taking a guess that that white paper is actually what you might've wanted to hear or read at that moment. Yeah. Sometimes it's an educated guess. Sometimes it's just like I'm burning down trees if I physically mail you a white paper, because that's essentially what you're going to do. You're going to throw it away or recycle it. And so the key is then to be able to say, all right, based upon what I know about you, this is not something you'd message. It's something you got to think based upon what I know about you. Here are the challenges you most likely have. My job is to figure out which of those most likely applies or to ask you if I can get you on a really quick phone call and this is just dialing in or get you to respond to a direct message. Which of these is your chief concern right now? Because so many of your competitors are dealing with it because I'm talking to them. Um, love to be able to get something over that might help you solve this today or get you a little closer to that solution. If I do that a couple of times, I've earned the right to ask you for a little bit of time on your calendar. But if I don't know anything about you except your job title, I'm not giving anybody 15 minutes based on that because people ask me for it every day. Yeah. Uh, but if you can show me that you've done the research, you visited my website, you know who I'm targeting, who my clientele is, who I've worked with in the past, and you can identify a challenge that I likely have, you'll at least get a response, if not a meeting. But very few salespeople I found take the time to go that extra mile. Uh, and there's, you know, Zig Ziglar, you know, probably one of the oldest and most well-known sales trainers in the world, famous for saying there's very little traffic on the extra mile because so few people are willing to go that far. Yeah, love that. So this message that let's let's kind of double click into the value piece of it. So what are examples of value? Because like you said, it means something different for everyone. And that word gets thrown around a lot. And I think a lot of sales reps don't really know what what it, what it is or what it looks like, or if they had it, what, what they could share. How do you think about value and giving first? So you have to, you have to deconstruct it from people that already have success with your product or service. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by that is to be able to interview those folks after the fact and say, what was life like before this thing yeah. that we sold to you? And what is life like afterwards, uh, both personally and professionally? Has it saved you money, which has helped save you time? Has it created time? Uh, has it you know, gotten people promoted? Did it make an impact in your community? Uh, to really ask questions like that. And if you have a service team that's already got those answers, hey, beautiful, you don't have to do the legwork. But often I find it's the salespeople or the sales enablement person that ends up having to do this particular lift. But once you have those answers, now you can actually, one, target people better because you're looking for people that you know are interested in those outcomes through press releases, through LinkedIn posts, through uh, affinity groups, things like that. Uh, but you also have the ability to reach in and say, a couple of the people that we've worked with were challenged with this. And now they're experiencing a better quality of life, business results in these areas. It's curious to know who in your organization is most responsible for producing that. And it may be the person you have on the phone. Yeah. Uh, maybe not. Maybe it's somebody else that's the actual decision maker. That's a great way to get there. Uh, but what I've done there is instead of saying, I've got this widget I need to sell you. Are you interested in buying it today? It's I've taken the time to understand a little bit about what's going on, but I still need more education. I'm willing to be humble. Uh, could you educate me or point me to the person that can educate me on how this looks inside of your organization right now? And who's the person most responsible for making sure that it works out okay? Yeah. So you're, and this is something I recommend a ton, especially over the phone, is that you're coming in with a hypothesis. Mm -hmm. Even outside of the individualized research, you already have a hypothesis that, you know, if we're using VPs of sales as an example, 
because we work with a bunch of them and they came to us with these types of challenges, you're looking for patterns. Yeah. Because usually you can narrow it down to two or three things that people are typically working on that they're having challenges with. And you're kind of suggesting, hey, if you're like some of these other people that we work with, it's a way for you to kind of add social proof and say, hey, we work with all these mm-hmm. companies without saying we're super awesome and super cool. It's like, we work with these other companies that are like yours. These people are dealing with something like this and here's how we help them. And you're you're really just like putting out there and suggesting something because this is something that I don't know if you get in the work that I do. Some people think that that is too assumptive. And I'm like, well, if you miss and they're not working on those things because they can see that you're putting in effort and those are things that are likely top of mind for them at some point in the past were top of mind, people are much more willing to interact with you and correct you than if you just come oh, and yeah. say, my product does this. Do you want to chat about it? You know, what are, what are your thoughts? And something that I, I, something I see very good salespeople doing, and when I started noticing and I started requiring it of my team, is they actually track the issues that yep. they're getting hits on, yep. right? So maybe you come to the table with these three issues. So you're just making hash marks or filling it out on a spreadsheet or something. But that way, if you make 100 calls in the course of a couple of days and, you know, 90 of those uh, connections get you this issue, well, you know that that issue is, is major, right? You know, focus more on that, subdivide it, because obviously that's that's the big thing in your industry. But maybe none of those issues are really getting a lot of traction, but people are telling you, hey, these other two or three, those are the issues that are. Yeah. Well, if you can begin gathering those, producing content or you know, going back to your clients and saying, I know you told me this, but we're hearing a lot of that. Did that affect you at all? And you know, that way you can retarget and reassess an A-B test if you need to um, across better communication. So there's a lot of great ways to make that happen. Um, and I think it really comes down to being willing to track. And that's something I see very few salespeople doing. Um, you know, they, they might re- rely on their, their voice over internet provider to, to rely on, you know, telling them the number of calls they've made. You can get into my CRM and check out how many account notes I've made. I'm making the assumption that's accurate. Uh, but if I ask you, you know, which objections did you hear in the last week? How many salespeople can give me a firm number? You know, if I ask you um, how many decision makers were willing to engage you or how many did you really have to, you know, put a pry bar into their ear with, um, you know, what, you know, they were just too busy. They didn't really like your opening. They didn't get a lot of value out of what your hypothesis was. Yeah. And you could tell me, well, you know, most of them were willing. Oh, most is not good enough. That's hoping that your, your answer is accurate. Um, you know, of the hundred calls that you made, how many decision makers were you able to reach? How many of them were receptive to the opening message? What was that opening message? Which issue did they really hook into? And did you generate a great conversation out of? If you can drill into that particular conversion funnel, I mean, there's just no stopping you. Even if you have a really, really poor value proposition, no other salesperson's working in that way. Yeah. So if you can do that, I mean, you know, you, you can just take that one thing, even if it's a really poor value proposition, try it enough times that you'll know this is the answer I'm getting instead. Let's put more focus there. Yeah, I love that because it's, you know, it's taking this thing that's kind of a big task to do outbound. It's a, kind of like a daunting thing to think about. And it's taking even something like a, uh, your calls and it just honestly makes it a little bit more fun because there's so much more nuance to it, you know, like basketball like i said so you wouldn't reflect on a basketball game and be like oh yeah i i could have scored more points well it's like well no shit (laughs) you could have done that you know um how many times did you drive left versus right what was your shooting percentage right versus left how far away were the review the game tape yeah you start like really really drilling down 
I want to talk about something you brought up earlier because we've kind of we've talked about innovation. We've talked about your three M's. Uh, so like kind of the systems behind it. You mentioned something around debriefing and just reporting yeah. on stuff. How do you recommend a rep incorporates some sort of uh, regular cadence of debriefing into their week, their day, that sort of stuff? How, how do you feel like this fits into the picture? And so if you're dialing out a lot, it's going to be very tough to debrief every one of those calls because you're going to be leaving a lot of voicemails. Maybe you'll follow up with an email and it's good to track open rates on things like that. But the time to do a debrief is when you actually reach a human being, because otherwise your CRM can tell you everything else, right? How many account notes did you make as opposed to call logs, that kind of thing. But with actually debriefing a meeting or a conversation with a decision maker, there are three questions that we advise salespeople ask as soon as you can after the meeting. And the first question is, you know, knowing what I know about how that meeting went, what could I have done better as a salesperson? Could I have, you know, prepped a, a, an objection turnaround because I heard that there's just no budget this year, but I kind of know there is because they're spending money on a lot of other stuff. They just didn't see enough value to spend it with me. Um, you know, what, what else could I have done as a salesperson to prep for that? And don't just think about it, write it down somewhere, get it in a spreadsheet, get it on a sheet of paper, get it in a call log. The second question to ask is knowing what I know about that prospect, what would have been valuable for me to walk in that meeting having already researched or gotten into my head? Now, some of this information may not be publicly available. Like there's no way to know that you both might've lived in the same town when you were in the second grade. You discovered that in the meeting, it was a great rapport builder, whatever, right? Maybe that can't be discovered outside of the meeting, but if it could be, there's a lot of things that can be discovered outside of a meeting that we happen to discover in the course of a conversation. To walk in knowing that already, is great intelligence to have. And it could be who they've purchased from in the past, who was their last SaaS provider in whatever vertical that you sell that market into. Uh, might be how many people are in their company, what their 10K states, their corporate goals are this year, what's their big initiative around diversity, inclusion, equity, I mean, whatever big thing they've got going on is. Um, knowing that ahead of time that you had to learn in the meeting might be more valuable in helping you do better pre-meeting or pre-call research in the future. The final question and this is the toughest one for a sales leader to hear, but it's essential that salespeople drill into it and actually get the information out of their heads, is knowing how that meeting went now, what could my company have provided to me in the way of training or resources? Um, it would have been really helpful for me to have a pricing sheet, which is something that we don't really like to do even in my own company, but occasionally we get the question, you know, I need to see solid prices and I need to see them now. Well, if we had to produce something like that, what would it look like, even if they were approximations? And we could list that at the top of the sheet of paper. Uh, but a lot of companies you know, have an opportunity to really help their salespeople out. And the challenge is the salespeople never really say specifically what you could have done as a company to help me in training, overcoming objections, in uh, using a script in a better way, in making sure that I was providing more value uh, and before I sold, or in what are the resources I need, the product samples, the specs, the price sheets, whatever, that might've really helped me you know, get that person further into my pipeline. But if you can answer those three questions and get them out of your head and onto a sheet of paper or into a spreadsheet, and then take action on them, right? It's not just enough to complain about something, but you actually have to start building on the, the tail end. And you'll know, I heard this objection three times because I debriefed three meetings. I better learn how to turn that objection around or I'm just going to keep hitting that wall. But by beginning to gather a debrief in that way, sharing it with your sales leader, if you can, and your team, if you're willing, then you can rise the tide of everybody's ship. Because Jason, if I know you're hitting the same three objections that I am, then I know it's an industry-wide thing. It might not be just me. 
And if you found a great way to solve it and we're on the same team and you're willing to share, man, that's, that's like what a good team should be in my mind. Yeah. Yeah. I really like that third part. You know, what can my company provide? Because I find that a lot of people, don't get me wrong. I think most companies should be providing way more, but as an individual, you got to take accountability over the things you need help for. So saying, Oh God, I need help with my cold calls. That's like, get way more specific than that. I keep getting this specific objection and I keep responding with this. And for some reason they respond with this and it's not working. That's such a specific thing that people can actually help you with. That doesn't take much brain power for them to think about, you know? So I I, I love that part, like taking way more accountability over what you need help with. Dude, we are out of time, man. This flew by. <laughs> so, yeah, this is fun. Yeah. So where, uh, what do you want to leave us with? Any any parting thoughts? And where can people go to find more of what you're doing at Bulletproof Selling and get more of your stuff? Well, just like saying I need help with cold calling could open up a whole can of worms because there's a lot involved with cold calling. There's a lot involved with outbound. If you're interested in systemizing a sales cycle, well, there's a lot of different areas to target in. And I don't know which one you're actually interested in right now, because I don't know as a listener or as a viewer what your biggest challenge is, but you know. So here's a way for us to facilitate helping you get better today. If you go to bulletproof-selling.com, there's a five-minute sales assessment on every web page on that site. It's absolutely free. You take that assessment and you tell me which area of your sales cycle you need a system built for today. And our platform will generate that sales system for you so that you no longer have to rely on hope in developing new prospects or researching them or conducting outreach or developing a great script or driving a meeting. Uh, Whatever challenge you have across your sales cycle, we've got a system for, and I'm happy to turn it over to you. So bulletproof-selling.com, take the five-minute sales assessment. You know, one of the toughest thing about getting better at cold calling, which I'm assuming is one of the things you care about if you're you know, listening to this podcast, is a lot of times when a rep comes to me and they want feedback, I'm not able to listen to a recording because they don't record their calls. So they're giving me secondhand uh, regurgitated their recollection of what happened in the call and more along the outcome of the call. And they're asking for coaching around that. And here's the thing, if you're getting a lot of objections, let's say, like we already use XYZ competitor and I'm coaching around that objection, what I didn't hear was the minute, two minutes of the call prior to that, that maybe you did something that caused that objection to happen and we could prevent it. I can't really do that if I don't have a recording to listen to. The other thing that's really hard too, as a sales manager, sales leader, is if you wanna provide cold call coaching to your reps and you don't know what they sound like on the phone, it's kind of hard to deliver that feedback and then to know if they're using the feedback that you're giving them. So if you're not able to record calls and you don't have a sales engagement tool in place where you can actually coach your reps, I highly recommend that you check out Outplay. And this episode's brought to you by Outplay. They're a sales engagement tool that I'm super excited about right now. And one of their features that's really you know, kind of badass is call whisper and call barging. So one thing you can do is listen live into a cold call as it's happening with a rep or listen to a recording if you prefer, but you can listen to these calls and give feedback either real time or give feedback on those recordings. So it allows you to remotely coach your team. You don't gotta be in the office sitting next to them to hear what they're saying. 
So if you're looking for a way to give better coaching to your reps, especially over the phones, make sure to check out Outplay. I think you'll really like their whisper function and their call barging function. I also got a special deal for you guys too. If you're looking to bring this into your team or you're looking to use this as a tool to coach yourself, we got a special Black Friday offer uh, where I'm gonna get you 20% off. So you're gonna save 180 bucks if you use this link, outplayhq.com slash Jason. Outplay is normally $75 a month or $900 annually. I can help you save 20% off of that. So it's about 180 bucks. Go to outplayhq.com slash Jason.